This is episode 11 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 11 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellanius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Patrick J. Deneen, Associate Professor of Political Science and Acting Director of the Center for Ethics and Culture in the 2018 spring semester. We talk about his academic journey to Notre Dame, his involvement with the center, and about his latest book, the best-selling Why Liberalism Failed. Let's head into the Maritime Library for this week's conversation. Well, I'm here today with Patrick J. Deneen. Patrick holds a BA in English Literature and a PhD in Political Science from Rutgers University. He worked at the U.S. Information Agency as a speechwriter and special advisor, was an assistant professor in the Department of Politics at Princeton, and an associate professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown, and joined the political science faculty at Notre Dame in 2012. He is the author of several books, including The Odyssey of Political Theory in 2000, Democratic Faith in 2005, and his most recent book, Why Liberalism Failed, which is a new release from Yale University Press. His teaching and writing interests focus on the history of political thought, American political thought, religion and politics, and literature and politics. In the spring 2018 semester, Patrick is serving as the interim director of the Center for Ethics and Culture, while Carter Sneed is on his own writing assignment. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thanks. So tell us a bit about uh, about yourself. How did you come to Notre Dame? Uh, I got in a car and drove here. Uh, and, yeah, the old no, guy flew here. I, I, was, uh, tired. I was a tenured professor at uh, Georgetown University. I held an endowed chair at Georgetown in Hellenic Studies. Uh, there was no reason for me to leave, uh, uh, that I had to leave, I should say. Uh, but there were uh, a number of things that, that drew me to Notre Dame. Uh, and uh, when the opportunity came about... Um, after long discernment and discussion with my family, uh, we decided to make a move in midstream with family uh, in tow yeah. uh, from the bright lights and big city of the capital to uh, northwest Indiana and the cornfields. And uh, we have been grateful ever since. Uh, this is obviously it's a very unique place. Um, it is both a great university in its own right, but it is, I think, uh, a great Catholic university. Uh, I know there's lots of people who debate over what that means exactly, sure. uh, but it is very much discernibly and palpably a Catholic institution. And I would just point to one of the things that really drew me here were the so many of the colleagues that I've now uh, come to cherish uh, and become very close friends with in so many cases, and how striking it is and how unusual it is to have so many smart, brilliant, interesting profound people working in every possible discipline um, in a Catholic light and, in, and through a Catholic lens in the same institution. Uh, and that, to me, is the essence of a sort of what a Catholic university is. Sure. Everyone, in a sense, engaged in the inquiry in their particular field, but with a broader and deeper and transcendent aim of understanding in light of the Catholic understanding of the human person and of the created order. 
Uh, and that, that, to my mind, is, is what, it, what it is to be at a Catholic university. So um, to come here and to be part of this community and to contribute to this community uh, has been really one of the greatest decisions uh, we've ever made, even in the midst of winter. <laughs> even in the midst of winter. Uh, so you move from the Washington Beltway to the uh, Michiana Beltway. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and I do have to say that the, uh, the traffic situation is actually quite a bit better here. <laughs> it helps that you live just a few blocks from campus. Though, right? Yeah, we were very fortunate to purchase the house that was once owned by the great athletic director, Moose Krause. And oh so God. we feel like we really are a part of Notre Dame history. Yeah. Wow. Well, what are you teaching this semester? This semester, I'm very fortunate to be teaching uh, the second semester of a full-year seminar through the Glenn Honors Program. So I have 15 first-year students who have been selected for the Glenn Honors Program. Uh, Very bright, uh, very eager, interesting. Uh, And we've been pursuing a theme of utopia and dystopia through mostly through fiction, but also through some nonfiction. The first half of the academic year, the fall semester, we looked at more classical expressions. We read some Homer, some Plato, some Dante, Thomas More. Mm-hmm. The second half of the semester, we're looking at more contemporary works. We actually started with Gulliver's Travels, not exactly <laughs> contemporary, but a bit more modern. Uh, we're going to be moving through and reading things like 1984 and Brave New World. Um, we're going to look at a, a novel by P.D. James about a world in which no children are born called The Children of Men. Oh, yeah. And a kind of stark dystopic vision of a civilization without a future. And I will be interested to hear what my students have to say about that, given kind of trends of uh, lack of uh, or, or very uh, severely low child rate, uh, child uh, uh, replacement, uh, rate. replacement rates yeah. uh, throughout the developed West. Wow. Well, how did you get involved in the work of the center? Well, of course, I knew about the center uh, long before I came here. In fact, I think uh, the first time I came here, it was for a Stanford-Notre Dame football game. I took my then middle school son, and we ended up uh, at one of the early tailgates uh, that was being hosted by David Solomon. And I ran a program at uh, Georgetown called the Tocqueville Forum, and it was inspired in part by things like the Center for Ethics and Culture and the James Madison program at Princeton. And so there were several occasions when I was able to speak with and meet with David Solomon at the time and learn more about the center's work. Uh, and then uh, I believe the first time I came to Notre Dame for an academic uh, event, it was to participate and to present in one of the center's uh, fall conferences. And this was uh, maybe two or three years before David Solomon uh, um, stepped down from the directorship. Okay. And that, I think, like for so many people who come to the, the fall conference for the first time, that was a mind-bending experience. I had never been to a conference and to a kind of group, a, a kind of collection of people uh, who were so um, profoundly and passionately interested in exploring in the deepest way possible the kind of the question on the table, which is always in some ways related to the deepest questions at the heart of what, broadly speaking, the Catholic tradition embraces. And I, you know, I was pretty much, uh, wow, if, if Notre Dame can have a program like this, uh, this is a place uh, to keep my eye on. That's awesome. Well, what ideas are you bringing to the table, even in your little interim work with us as, uh, as director? What are you bringing to the table this semester? Well, first of all, I think the Hippocratic Oath applies, do no harm. Uh, <laughs> yes, with uh, with uh, previous directors uh, like uh, Professor Solomon, David Solomon, and now Carter Sneed, uh, one doesn't have to do a lot uh, <laughs> uh, for one semester. 
Um, but I did, I did think uh, about what I could do and contribute uh, even in my relatively brief tenure as uh, acting director. And I thought, having hosted a number of Soren Fellow dinners over the years uh, at our home and talking with um, many of the Soren Fellows, that they expressed a hunger um, for more, um, more programming on the kind of intellectual side of things. Uh, not that there's a lack of those things, but sort of directed programs in which they could uh, not only explore ideas, but kind of form a kind of culture, uh, form a a kind of community in that in which they could kind of meet regularly and get to know each other a bit better um, and combine fellowship and the intellectual life. So we've, we've made a few uh, plans to, to run something that we've called the uh, Soren Salon, which will be a, a series of basically book groups that will be reading a common text and small groups of students will be meeting at some faculty houses and it will culminate with a lecture from a guest from out of town uh, and, and a dinner together so that everyone will have had an opportunity to talk about our common reading, although in small groups, and then a bigger group will come together and we'll have a chance uh, to break some bread and to, and to reflect on, in this case, it's C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, his great sermon. And we're going to try to do that um, in the early part of the semester, and then again uh, after uh, spring break we'll probably tackle something by Joseph Pieper is, is my thought. So we're going to do that, and we're also going to do uh, one event uh, in which a professor will present on the theme of the book that changed my life. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're going to have Professor David O'Connor in the philosophy department who's going to talk about Lord of the Rings. And oh, we'll have my. about 20, 25 students uh, going to meal, but also we're going to give everyone a free copy of the book uh, <laughs> so that they'll have one of the books that changed one of their professors' lives on their shelves on the condition that they never sell it back to the bookstore. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I can I can attest that that is a book that indeed changed my life too. Yeah, I, in fact, the difficulty was I think in Professor O'Connor's case, and it'll be true in my case too. There are so many books that changed my life. The difficult thing is sort of narrowing it down. But we both agreed that the Lord of the Rings would be a great way to start this series. Well, in addition to working with us uh, at the center, you're on the road a lot this semester, uh, talking about your latest book, Why Liberalism Failed, which can be described as blowing up the political science world. I mean, it's garnered prominent reviews from media outlets as divergent as the New York Times, National Review. I've read a review on the University Bookman blog. Uh, Countless political bloggers and pundits are mentioning it, responding to it. Um, So for the listener who hasn't yet read, uh, to begin, what do you mean by liberalism? You have listeners who haven't read my book yet? I'm very disappointed to hear this. (laughs) It's uh, early. I apologize. No, and your book is hard to get. I mean, in their defense, it's hard to get on Amazon. It's true. It's uh, it sold out before the first week was out, yeah. uh, which is when you get three mentions in the New York Times in one week. I guess that could happen. So that was a surprise to me, and it was a surprise to uh, Yale University Press. A and welcome surprise to both. It, well, welcome, but I really do hope they have new books soon available. <laughs> Um, well, what I mean by liberalism is not uh, it's not the the way in which we usually speak of as a partisan position of sort of left the left side of our political spectrum. I really mean uh, here a kind of a much deeper political philosophy that has its roots back some five centuries, uh, and the political philosophy begins essentially from the ontological assumption that we are. Um, free and equal individuals by nature, sort of the kind of state of nature scenario you encounter in the likes of Thomas Hobbes, who's not a liberal himself, but who Mm -hmm. establishes this kind of theory 
uh, and most prominently in, in John Locke, uh, who is sometimes described as, as America's philosopher. And we tend, uh, I think, as contemporary Americans to sort of take this assumption about who we are and our rights and bearers of natural rights as kind of the water in which we swim. But this was a revolutionary idea in the history of political thought that was um, realized politically, particularly in the Western liberal democracies um, and especially America, but not only America, that this I, this basic operating assumption of um, the nature of human beings is not simply, and what I argue in the book, is not simply um, the basis of a political system, but it transforms a kind of way of life or it comes to define a way of life. And in the book, I try to trace out the way that this basic assumption transforms all of our, in a sense, relationships and our ways of being in the world. It transforms our relationship to nature, of course, transforms our relationships to each other, including families, Uh, or lack thereof increasingly. It transforms our understanding of the relationship of God and man. Uh, It transforms our relationship to technology. I have a chapter in the book in which I suggest that our technology is in some ways ordered by a deeper technology, which is this deeper philosophical assumption. And so our technology tends to be ordered to the liberation of the individual uh, uh, in, in keeping with this philosophy. The basic argument of the book, though, is that uh, while we tend to think that there's this great divide politically between people who are more individualistic in their outlook, we typically think of those as more conservative, uh, and those who are more um, statist in their outlook, people on the left. Um, I argue that these two things, in a sense, go together. They're both part of the liberal operating system, that the individual, in order for the individual to come into being, requires an extensive and indeed a quite, quite, quite um, encompassing state apparatus and structure to free the individual, in a yeah. sense, to make the condition of living like that naturally free human being real to us. Uh, and once liberated, we have been liberated from all of the various kinds of um, immediate and contextualized relationships and memberships and sort of the ways in which we define ourselves in relationship with others so that the only place where we can look to for assistance increasingly is to the state. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a point that Alexis de Tocqueville makes. I'm just stealing from Tocqueville, but he's a good source. Uh, so part of the, the final argument and why I make, make the argument that liberalism has failed is that we've kind of reached the culmination of this project in which individuals are completely liberated and we feel ourselves to be sort of completely powerless to these forces that we've created in order to liberate ourselves, including a state that's no longer under our control, a market that's no longer under our control, technological forces that are no longer under our control. These are all the conditions of our liberty that ironically end in a condition in which we feel ourselves to be powerless. I'm reminded of the idea of the Leviathan. I mean, we've created this ginormous thing that, like you say, is basically kind of circumscribing our rights, our freedoms, because, and yet we created it. In some ways, you could say that one of the things the Leviathan does in this sense is, to use Jean-Jacques Rousseau's phrase, it forces us to be free, right? (laughs) That uh, uh, if you insist on retaining these old-fashioned views of what it is to be a sort of embedded member of a community, uh, we're going to kind of put a heavy finger on the scale to uh, to encourage you to think otherwise. I mean, think of, uh, well, here's an event uh, close to home, the HHS mandate, right, that uh, people would be forced or through their insurance to carry 
uh, contraceptives. Even the nuns will be forced to carry contraceptives, recipients of last year's Evangel Vitae Award, the, the Little Sisters. Uh, in other words, that you will be forced to be the liberated individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the government, in some ways, will backstop uh, and um, advance that vision of, of human life. Of course, the irony is that in forcing us to be free, we're being forced right. to adopt a certain kind of um, condition in the world. Which then is in conflict with this other right and freedom of religious freedom. You know, and That's right. But what's, what's interesting to me is how, much, how many of these clashes now are not merely clashes between the state and religion. It's a clash between this idea of the liberated individual that really is at the heart of the modern liberal order and the idea that I think is embedded deeply in the Catholic faith and much of Christianity that we're relational creatures, mm-hmm. that we're created. We're not self-making. We're created. We have a nature. That nature has to be respected. Uh, indeed, it in some ways has to govern us uh, and that we are not the shapers and makers of ourselves uh, and so we see not just a clash in some senses politically and legally. We're seeing a clash of profoundly different worldviews of philosophies that often lie undetected to us. Well, we actually have a podcast listener question. How have conservative readers reacted to your book? I mean, as you explained, you know, both progressive liberalism and what we think of as modern conservatism are both formed by this classical liberalism idea. So so what do your conservative readers say in reaction to your thesis that it has failed and can't be brought back to life? Most, I think at this point, uh, some of the most prominent uh, conservative uh, reactions to the book, several of which have appeared in the New York Times, David Brooks, uh, Ross Douthat, um, a review yesterday in the, in the National Review by David French, uh, who's I'm very honored that he would review my book. Uh, those, uh, a review as well in the Wall Street Journal. I think all have essentially similarly made the argument that while they respect my argument and find a great deal of um, worth reflection and indeed um, uh, concern, uh, source for concern, that ultimately I, I think to a person – they want to maintain that the liberal tradition as originally conceived, uh, let's say sort of the more classical liberal tradition, the Lockean tradition, the tradition that informs our constitutional order, that that liberalism is okay, that that's sound. Mm-hmm. And the liberalism that's become bad is progressive liberalism, is the kind of uh, the move toward a more statist, collectivist understanding of liberalism. My book is really holds the position that the two are, in a sense, the flip side of the same coin, uh, that in a way the collectivist ambition in some ways is the realization of the radical individuation of human beings, that once we've been freed up from all of these forms of memberships and families and civil society and religion and so forth, guess what? Now we're liberated to become part of this mass, mm-hmm. right? We become atomized so that now we can be collected up into the into the Leviathan. And I fully expect there's going to be a lot more conservative commentators who are going to push back on me on that score. It is worth interesting. It was worth noting of interest that most of the progressive readers so far have made the exact opposite conclusion. It's progressive liberalism that's good and worthy of defense. Classical liberalism is the liberalism that needs to be jettisoned. All that concern with individual private rights and the market, and so forth, and so. Very much predictable, uh, I think it seems to me, is that people are kind of digging in their heels into their respective camps. Um, but I do, I do have to say that um, in the treatments from sort of both sides of the political spectrum, each side has said that they're a bit worried that I might be right. <laughs> well, 
So it it does seem indeed like this is also ground that's been kind of prepared by other uh you know, very prominent writers and commentators. I'm thinking of, of course, Rod Dreyer and the Benedict Option, which uh, obviously is very influential over the last year and a half or so. Even back, uh, Wendell Berry in his Home Economics and What Are People For? Uh, Frederick Wiseman's films kind of call attention to, you know, here's here's what our society is looking like, and it, you know, the the center, you know, cannot hold in a way, kind of kind of thing. Um, now that you've added your voice to this conversation. Is that it? I mean, is is our society irretrievably doomed? What might you propose that we do about it, if if anything? Seems to me you, you may want to mention one other person who's uh, uh, seems to have laid some important groundwork here, which is a fellow named Alistair McIntyre, <laughs> well, uh, a permanent fellow here at the Center for Ethics and Culture, who's uh, it seems to me his philosophical work is very much uh, on the side of sort of more philosophy as opposed to political philosophy uh, has. Um, Engage in much of the same sort of analysis. Um, so I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not alone in some ways, and of course making these kinds of arguments. Right. Um, I don't I don't think for a moment that in a sense liberalism is going away. So my title is in some ways uh, it's meant to be a kind of paradox, which is that liberalism is failing because liberalism is succeeding. Mm-hmm. That the more it becomes fully itself, the more it ceases to be the thing that it claims to be. The more it claims to be the the system of government and of society and of economics that frees us the more likely it is that in some ways we're captured in this kind of iron cage of structures and, and uh, um, forces uh, that are unleashed in order to liberate us, that it's based fundamentally on a false anthropology, a false view of human nature. We are not radically individuated selves. We are not atomistic individuals. Uh, liberalism begins with a view that we're wholes apart. That's W-H-O-L-E-S. Right. We are wholes right. apart. And it seems to me that... Um, if there's going to be an answer to this, we have to begin to fundamentally change the way that we think of ourselves, which is that we are parts of wholes. That's, okay. That would be the, the riposte. And here's where I think uh, Catholic social thought, Catholic political thought, Catholic theological tradition, Catholic philosophical tradition and so forth all have an enormous contribution to make. In fact, it seems to me a corrective contribution to make. It's not that the entire order has to be upended, that we have to engage in some kind of a revolution. I think if the problem is fundamentally anthropological, that is to say a a false theory of human nature, we need a better theory of human nature. Mm -hmm. And that would be the place to start. So everyone wants to know what's your political solution. And my first answer to that is that we shouldn't think of this as a narrowly political problem. It's, It's a much deeper challenge in a way. Um, the first place I would suggest starting is thinking about how we educate people differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and a really good institution like Notre Dame could be making great contributions in this regard in, th- in offering a different understanding of what the human person is, a really distinctive one that it seems to me could emanate outwards and be a kind of persuasive force in a world that's desperately seeking an answer. And that that to me is the most striking thing about the response to my book. I mean, I want to think that the book is great and everyone is interested in it, but it also reflects a felt sense that we're in the midst of a crisis. You know, it's hitting at a moment when everyone is looking for some kind of an explanation and for an answer. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the answer has to not just be narrowly about what this party can do or what that party can do, but how we can offer a different understanding of the human person and that's going to begin in places like Notre Dame and why something like the Center for Ethics and Culture can play such an important role with these bright, eager, interested, 
engaged, and I think and high um, and high achieving, high achieving young people who are yeah. going to go on and have a big impact in our culture. So I'm I'm delighted to be acting director of the center and to be involved with it this year. I hope I can leave a little mark uh, with some of our programming with our students. Uh, but more than that, just to be a part of Notre Dame has been a blessing uh, and a great privilege and an honor. Well, Patrick Deneen, acting director of the Center for Ethics and Culture and author of Why Liberalism Failed, thank you kindly for taking time to, from your busy schedule promoting the book to, uh, to sit down with us. Thanks. This has been a great pleasure. Thanks, Ken. Thank you to Patrick Deneen. His book, Why Liberalism Failed, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Learn more about the book in the show notes. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We'd love your feedback. Contact the show by emailing cecpodcast at nd.edu. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to tell your friends. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.